Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. One of those challenges that we've come back to again and again in this podcast is how to think about and talk about risks and benefits. So much of our job is about estimating these, the risk of cancer, of sepsis, of getting a complaint or being struck off, and the benefits of statins or social prescribing or saying yes to that request for a blood test, which I'm not sure is needed, but I just want to get home. And so much of the skill of our job is how we discuss these risks and benefits with patients. So today we're joined by a hugely influential and prominent researcher and clinician who has a particular interest in how we estimate the benefits and risks of cancer screening. But before I reveal who he is, I need to say a quick hello to my Deep Breath In co-host, Navjoy and Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. Hello, I'm Navjoy Lada. I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and a GP in London. And I forgot to say who I am. I'm Tom Nolan. I'm a, a GP and also a clinical editor uh, at the BMJ. Um, so I think we should introduce our guest straight away. So um, this is uh, Michael Bretthauer. Uh, Michael, do you want to uh, yeah, give us your introduction and uh, we'll, we'll get into our, our chat? Sure. I'm Michael Bretthauer. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Oslo. I am um, working with a program of evidence-based medicine at the medical school here in Oslo. I'm also a gastroenterologist and I am working mainly as an endoscopist part-time in addition to academic work at Oslo University Hospital. Good to be here. Thank you very much for, for coming in. So we've got um, a few of your recent um, publications to talk about and uh, lot, lots lots to get into. I want to get straight into this one that's just been published in, in JAMA Internal Medicine. Um, about uh, cancer screening and and I think it struck me because it, it seemed to get to a fundamental question that that I feel like we should know already uh, about but 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 obviously we don't or you wouldn't have had to do the research so tell us about that sure so 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 the recent paper which was published last week in in gem I am as you say Tom was uh, was about the question that so it it, it I, I have to go a little back a couple of years because I am I was living in the U.S. at the time, and I was uh, listening to the radio when I was driving into work each morning, and I was looking at the billboards with advertisements. And one of the things that I saw almost every day or listened to in the radio was that was promotion for cancer screening. Uh, and obviously, we have the same here in Europe. And one of the slogans that is used, uh, uh, and it's a very powerful slogan, is cancer screening saves your life, or it's, it's life-saving, or some 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 sort and form of that slogan that we all know and that is used by authorities or by cancer societies or by uh, organizations uh, which are interested in cancer screening to promote it and to get people to attend to screening. And I was I was interested, and obviously this is a powerful slogan. It's a slogan that makes you think, that makes you probably get motivated to to go to, to go to cancer cancer screening. And I was wondering, well, is this true? And I started out with thinking, what does this slogan actually mean? Because obviously we all know that life is not endless. So at the end, we all die. Um, um, so so it can't really save your life in the meaning of you live forever. Um, so the only conclusion I came to when I was sitting in the car driving was that it, it means that you live longer with the screening than without the screening. It's, it's, for me, it was the only 
logical interpretation of that slogan. And then I started to wonder if that's true. And obviously, many of the advertisements we see every day are not true. But I was thinking, well, this is more serious than buying a car or whatever. So I think it should be true. So I was curious to find out if it's true. And then I found that there was really no study that had looked at that systematically. So we, uh, me and other colleagues um, uh, tried to do that and, and did it and then published it last week. Wow. Um, that's amazing. Jenny, are you getting, getting nostalgic for your home, home country there? Well, in fact, I was smiling the whole time you were talking, Michael, because, and I, I, I should probably disclose a conflict of interest here that I oh. was involved in an organization in college called University Students Against Cancer, and I led the Cancer Screening Awareness Week as one of my kind of there extracurricular <laughs> activities. So I'm smiling because, abs- I mean, your your description just really resonates with the U.S. experience. So there is a lot of emphasis on cancer screening and on pushing cancer screening to people but we should probably find out you know don't keep us uh, hanging anymore but what did you find michael yes so what we did basically was we we went to all and we discussed this okay what what studies what studies would give us the most um reliable answers to that question do you live longer with screening than without screening and and very quickly we found out that would be randomized trials where you have one group that is offered screening and then another group randomized so there will be no no selection bias in another group uh, which would not get access to screening. And so we, we um, collected all the randomized trials that are published in the world over the last 30 years um, that looked at different cancer screening tests. And we, we, um, we looked at the most prominent ones, you know, mammography screening for breast cancer, uh, PSA screening for prostate cancer. Um, colorectal uh, cancer screening, uh, both with fecal testing and with endoscopy, and then endoscopy divided into sigmoidoscopy that was very popular a couple of years ago, or some years ago in the UK, for example, and colonoscopy. And we also added uh, lung cancer screening for smokers or former smokers. And we also wanted to do uh, cervical cancer screening, obviously, but we found out there is no randomized trials for cervical cancer screening. So we, we had to take that out again. Um, so we ended up with, with, you know, the screening for, for, for those cancers, um, um, breast cancer, prostate cancer, colorectal and, and, and lung. And then we combed through all the data and usually, you know, it's, it's hard to find out the length of life in the folks in the screening group as compared to the no screening group, because it's usually not displayed in the papers. Uh, what is displayed is the cancer specific mortality we were not interested in that for this paper. It's also interesting, and I guess we're going to come back to that. Um, but we were interested in the overall length of life, and we had to calculate that from the papers because the papers don't give you that time. So, so we calculated from the relative risks in one group um, as compared to the other group, and taking into account the follow-up time and 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 all that, and had very skilled statisticians to help us with that. And then found, maybe not surprising, I don't know, that um, for most, almost all cancers, there was no meaningful gain in the length of life with screening as compared to, 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 to no screening. For mammography and fecal testing, the point estimates were zero days, which, uh, which was, um, well, it was a little stunning. Uh, zero days, no difference at all. And then for um, 
for the other screening, there was a little, the participants were a little bit on the positive sides, you know, 30 days, 40 days, 50 days, but the confidence intervals were all, all overlapping. Uh, and the only test where there was a borderline significant result was actually sigmoidoscopy screening for colorectal cancer with a life gain of about two and a half, three months um, for the folks who, who were in the screening group. Uh, that that's that that was the results, and then you probably will ask me later if that's you know is this clinically relevant or not? Is it is it a lot? Is it little? And I think we can discuss we can discuss that. I I, I think it's up to everybody to decide that. But I think I think it's it's good to have the numbers and and out there. It's it's certainly not life years because that's where we start off. You know, everybody talks about life years gained, and the, you know the health economists are using that and. We, we we plan to do life years and then we found out okay there's no years here so let's go to months okay there's no months here so let's go to days okay there's no days here mm -hmm. so that's where we that's that's where we headed <laughs> i just wondered michael if you i'm sorry if i missed this somewhere so you said that in this study you didn't look at cancer specific mortality but has that been done elsewhere or did you do that in another place i just just out of curiosity just for this conversation because i don't want to ask you something if you hadn't done it it has been done elsewhere many times okay. okay so we thought that's well known and we don't we don't repeat it so there is right. there is a benefit for some for, for for some of these all of these screenings except prostate really uh, there is some benefit for those cause specific that is so fascinating michael thanks so much i mean i, I just wonder if you could say a little bit more because of course total number of days lived is not the only thing that matters to patients, right? Like patients matter about their quality of life. They also matter or they also care about rather, you know, what they die from and what their experience is, their kind of experience of illness and the care that they're likely to receive. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about kind of the other endpoints here and maybe even reflecting on, you know, if, if they don't, if in by your um, systematic review and meta-analysis, there are minimal gains in terms of days of life, what about kind of mortality specific to these cancers? Yes, and that's very important. And 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 uh, thank you for the question. So we did not include in this paper the cause-specific um, uh, um, uh, benefits of screening. So let's say for mammography screening, uh, how much does it reduce um, the risk of dying from breast cancer? Um, and, and because that has been reported widely over the past, you know, 20 years. Um, and we were not interested in that in that paper. But obviously, um, that is very important for patients and and very important for GPs uh, who who talk uh, about cancer screening with patients. Length of life is not the only measure. Um, if you go to, for example, mammography screening, you uh, expect to reduce your risk of dying from breast cancer, and there is a certain effect, and that is well known. It's about twenty percent. Some people say 30%, this is relative risk, uh, and you have to translate that to your absolute risk of getting breast cancer. So let's say for for a woman in the UK, I think the current risk of getting breast cancer uh, during the course of your life is about 9%. Uh, and if you go to screening, you can reduce that by 20% out of 9. 20% of 9% is 1.8%. So you go from from um, from uh, nine to, to to let's say seven, um, 
Um, that is an effect that is interesting and important for many people, and I understand that, and I I, I don't want to dismiss that. Um, the question we ask is, coming back to that slogan on the billboards or in the radio, the question we ask, well, does it also increase your length of life? And it doesn't. Uh, it does decrease your risk of dying from breast cancer, but what this study means, or the results of the study is, you die of something else at about the same time that you would have done if you if you were not going to screening. You die of something else at about the same time, and 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 if you, philosophically, I mean, you could you know, dying of breast cancer is probably not the 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 the, the deaths that most people would like to die. Maybe people say, well, I would rather die of a sudden heart attack while I'm doing fun things, you know, out on the bicycle than dying of breast cancer after being sick for several years. Uh, which is very reasonable. Um, so you could probably reduce the risk of dying from that disease that don't sound very appealing for you to die of, and you could, you could choose them away. Uh, but you still die at this about the same time. So it's the, it's it's about the expectation. If you if you um, if we as doctors convey the expectations that people live longer, I don't I don't think that's correct. We can we can convey the message that well you know if screening works and here are the numbers you can um, you can use that risk of that disease but I don't think you can expect to live much longer so it's about the expectation the promotion the advertisement and all that that we talked about in the beginning that's super helpful it's so interesting isn't it because there is so much to unpack there about you know what what you're saying there's kind of there's a little bit about risk communication and how we talk to our patients about you know, when we are specifically talking about an intervention, we're talk we're usually talking about quite a narrow set of outcomes, but we may not we may not be explicit about that. But then there's all this kind of philosophical stuff as well and, and sort of more existential stuff about, you know, what what for an individual patient, what does a specific test mean and to their own values and, and to what, what they want. So it's a it's a really fascinating study because it kind of speaks to a lot of that. But just in terms of get, going back to the kind of communication with patient side of things, Michael, do you have any sense of, and maybe this is a deeply individual thing that will vary by patients, but whether patients want to hear, um, you know, about, you know, if they're having a conversation about cancer screening, whether they want to hear this kind of information imparted in, in this way? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm we are all patients as well as we are doctors. We are all human beings, and we are all sometimes sitting on the other side of that desk in, in 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 the GP office or in the hospital. So I can speak only for myself and people who I talk to, my family and friends. And I think I, when you when you when you have that conversation, I think most people, after a while, when you explain to them, well, you know, your doctor can either say to you, "Oh, this is good for you, just do it," which is what most people probably do, and then. You accept it, or you could have that conversation like, oh, look, this is your risk, and this is how much you can you reduce it with having a colonoscopy, for example. And this is what a colonoscopy actually means. This is how it feels. Uh, this is how long time it takes. This is how much it costs. Um, and then in the in the end, you can reduce your risk of colon cancer by, you know, X, but you, you don't live longer. Most people want that conversation if it's offered to them and they're conscious that such a conversation is actually possible. But they're not, not exposed to it. So it's our job as doctors, as GPs, or 
specialist like myself who does endoscopies to have that initiate that conversations with patients or with people really uh i think they would appreciate it it's just that they don't know they don't know that you can get such a conversation so they don't request it well, and also the the slogans that you've described are so pervasive and the kind of mindset about screening and how prevention is better than cure. You know, that there's just so much um, stacked in the favour of uh, a screening being a, a sort of net benefit. I was going to jump in to ask, you know, how can we explain these really nuanced and complicated concepts to patients? And then the way that you've kind of just it's not really complicated and it's it can be done quite fast or you can train it you know you just do it 10 times like we do all other stuff 10 times and then we, <laughs> you know i mean could even put it on the wall then you're ready to teach someone else you know? yeah you know and we had this other paper in the bmj earlier this summer um you know what is my risk and there is the recipe right there it's four points you know this is your risk of disease. This is your effect of screening. And at the end, by the way, you're not living longer. Is that the, the conclusion to mo most of the conversations <laughs> we, we'd be having on this? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> good question. I don't know. I mean, I mean, you know, one of one of the challenges with all these cancers and cancer screening is that, for example, compared to cardiovascular disease, these all these diseases contribute to a relatively small uh, piece of the pie when it comes to causes of death. You know, cardiovascular is is big. It's like 20, 25% of all causes of death are called the cardiovascular. So for the cardiologists, that conversation is, is a little easier than, you know, for breast cancer or for colorectal because it's 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 so much smaller. I wanted to bring up um, something that seems to come up, up a lot in my consultations. I, I seem to be like every day, it's a PSA. Can I have a PSA test? Should I have a PSA test? Can I have another PSA test? Yeah, that, that, that's most of my... <laughs> I work at the moment, it seems. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's interesting the reaction you get when you, you know, I, I think I'm okay at, at, at not just um, saying, you know, you shouldn't have it or whatever, or, or you know, gently mm. probing, like, well, what do you want to know about the PSA test? So, you know, basically, yeah. Yeah. is this person already made up their mind, you know, or do they actually want to have that kind of conversation you, you were describing? Um, it's funny, it's just funny that often you get a bit of like a, what like what? Why is this doctor sort of even going there? Because I, I guess it's such a everybody knows surely because there's so much about it. It's on the TV all the time. Every celebrity has wearing their little badge. Um, you know, you, 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 do you think there's a risk that we? And I guess if you don't do it well, you, you can lose a bit of credibility with your patient. Um, and my other thought was actually, is there another thing going on which is just a, a cultural thing, which is. It's just better to know, isn't it? They always say, and then you know, and if you if you do kind of go, well, we're not going to live longer. Often the the eventual conclusion is, well, I'd rather know. And I think, oh, well, I don't think I'm not sure if I would really. But um, so so those are the things that come up for me when I'm seeing, speaking to patients. I agree, I agree, Tom, and I think it's very natural and it's very human. I rather would like to know. I rather would like to prevent something. Mm. that i can prevent or i think i can prevent than waiting for it to be symptomatic it's it's it sounds logical it is human everybody would like to be healthy stay healthy um i understand that completely um but you know unfortunately the whole screening business is much much more complicated and there are 
harm. So for once, the benefits are, you know, I would say small for most of these screening tests, but probably more important, there are harms. It's not, it, it's, it's, it's harmful for some people. And I think PSA, you bring up PSA, PSA for me, and I obviously have looked, worked with these numbers and looked at these numbers for years now. And for me, I have this little hierarchy for myself um, uh, in, in the back of my head. And PSA, I think, stands out as the worst of all of them. Um, because if you really look at the numbers, and it's striking, um, the benefits are very, very small. Some studies, they, for example, in the BMJ, say there are actually zero meta-analysis. But the harms are significant. So we're talking about 50 to 70, and this is 50 to 70% of all prostate cancers overdiagnosed. An overdiagnosed cancer is an unnecessary cancer diagnosis. It's only harmful. There's never a benefit of an overdiagnosed cancer. And it's funny, then you have, so you have a tool which basically has no benefit, but which has um, uh, a large potential harm. So where in medicine would we offer a test or promote a test which has basically or virtually no benefit but potential large harm? We never do that. We would never allow a drug to be marketed when a pharma company says, well, look, we have a drug. It may help some people, but it harms a lot of other people. And, and, and that relationship is about you know, one to 100. And then you go to the FDA or EMA and say, oh, I would like to approve that drug. They would say, oh, okay, please go home right away. We never do that. Is that shifting a bit? I think the, the, the message I hear about PSA screening is that, well, maybe it's not as bad as it was because now we've got um, kind of watchful waiting approaches. We've got MRI, a biopsy, and, and, and maybe it, are those numbers less <laughs> unfavorable now? Or, or, or are you yes. quoting their... They're a little less unfavorable when it comes to the harms of the treatment, which basically, which obviously are significant, uh, you know, um, uh, impotence and and uh, all those things. Uh, but still, you have all you have the psychological effects. You have that cancer diagnosis, and it's looming in the back of your head, and you have to go to that surveillance examination every year, or take that MRI every other year. What 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 you do? That sticks to people, I think. Um, so I, me, I personally, um, I would be interested in, for example, colonoscopy or sigmoidoscopy screening. I think that deal is interesting for me as a, as a person, um, PSA, I would never do. I just, it's, it's, I think the numbers are just outrageously bad. Okay. Well, let's have a, a quick break. Uh, we'll, we'll be back right after this. Michael, can I ask you um, a question? This is coming from my own clinical practice as well, where I feel like I'm seeing um, many more younger people asking about kind of preventive uh, yeah. sort of things. And, and colorectal uh, cancer screening is a really good example because I think there's been an increase in sort of news stories about how it's affecting younger and younger people. And that's kind of throwing off the... The sort of discussion that I usually have because um, it's, you know, it, I think, yeah, your kind of threshold changes a little bit or, or you, you wonder whether it should. Uh, but at the same time, the stakes feel higher in terms of both the benefits and the risks for your kind of committing some, you know, 
I've, I can think of an example uh, recently where, you know, you've, someone goes with very, what seems like fairly kind of, you know, uh, I don't want to say trivial symptoms, but symptoms that aren't kind of barn door, just, you know, uh, abdominal pain, for example, um, goes to have a, a colonoscopy, finds two polyps of probably uncertain or, you know, no significance, and then is suddenly having a colonoscopy every five years. And so yeah. I, I I don't know how, 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 how do you broach this where the evidence base maybe hasn't caught up to um, what's happening in practice, or, or maybe it has, but that, that hasn't filtered down to the, the sort of frontline GPs where, um, yeah, where people are a bit younger maybe than the screening populations in studies or, you know, or, the, or they're presenting the symptoms maybe, but they're, they're a bit younger. How, how does that change things, would you say? Yeah, very good question. And obviously a clinical problem that, that many of us are facing uh, quite regularly. So let me just say, uh, yes, the headlines about increasing risk of colon cancer for the young people. Um, I think for the GP, it's important to know, yes, there is, or has been uh, an increase in what is called early onset colorectal cancer. So for for people who are below 50 or, 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 or 45 years old. However, if again, if you look at the absolute risk, we are dealing with very, very uh, small risks. So I just we just looked it up for Norway uh, this summer. So so the risk for colon cancer in when you are in your forties is 0.0016%. Uh, and then the numbers show that there is a 30% increase. And 30% increase sounds like a lot, but when you come from a risk which is almost zero, yeah, and then add 30% to that, it's still almost zero. Yeah. Um, so, so, so there is a relief to people who are concerned that, look, yes, there has been increase, and in the newspapers are probably correct, but I think explaining the risk, which is very, very low, helps. And that's number one. Uh, so I don't think screening in that age group is a good thing because the risk is just too low. Um, uh, people are coming with symptoms, uh, abdominal pain, whatever it is, uh, irritable bowel syndrome-like symptoms. Um, uh, I think it's difficult not to do a colonoscopy. Probably not the first time uh, the patients approach you, but these these symptoms they are they are reoccurring, and we all know that it's it's coming and going, and people are concerned. I know I understand that. So I think you know uh, in people in their forties, although the risk of colon cancer is very very low, and the risk for other diseases like you know IBD, Crohn's is also very low. Um, most likely that they have IBS, where a colonoscopy is really not indicated, but I understand that desire to exclude all those other much more serious diagnoses. So I would be inclined to then say, okay, fine, let's order that colonoscopy. It's difficult to get around it. So that might be one of those instances where following the, you know, e even if someone accepts that their risk is quite low, they might still, you know, they might still want to, yes. to want to do that. Yes. Yeah. In, in the UK, Michael, we, we use uh, fit testing and calprotectin testing like all the time. And I, I I don't know what other listeners or you two would feel, but I think usually you can, with a negative fit and calprotectin in that kind of scenario, you can usually feel pretty satisfied and the patients are usually pretty happy okay. to to avoid yes. that. Is that is that but is that not so much the case in other countries, maybe where there's a, a financial incentive to to have a colonoscopy for the clinician, that sort of thing? 
Exactly. I think it depends on the availability and 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 you know the insurance coverage and all that. How eager the colonoscopy are to do the colonoscopy, making money with it. But I I I, I obviously I agree. Do a fit test, do calprotectin, um, and if that's all normal, I think the risk that you find a colon cancer or serious Crohn's disease is is zero. Can I just jump into your to say that I think though this gets back to something you were saying earlier, Tom, which is this kind of culture around the need for high information, right? And like, like absolutely fit and calprotectin testing, like can really, for some people convince them or, or be enough, like, okay, I have that. We've done some testing. I have that reassurance and GPs can facilitate that conversation, but there's going to be a segment of the population and maybe that includes anxious doctors or people who have like too much information about what, you know, the risks are and what the symptoms could be. And or maybe they have like a family member, or a friend who's had early onset colon cancer diagnosed who like won't be able to kind of relax or stop thinking about it or be satisfied unless they get that colonoscopy. And I think, again, there's this there I, I in my practice as well, just see this kind of desire for that kind of more information. Um, and another example which comes to mind for me, which is not about cancer screening and, you know, may incur some harms, but not as much as like a PSA is AMH testing, right? So anti-mullerian hormone. People, I had that conversation just on repeat, people yeah. coming in. I want a fertility test. It doesn't exist. No, I want a fertility test. And then I would go through this whole conversation. And mind you, these things take time, right? So go through the whole conversation about even, you know, whether your AMH is low or high has no bearing on your ability to carry a successful pregnancy to term. And they'd be like, yep, and I still want it, which is okay. Like, I get it. You want to know that number. But there is that kind of need for that, like, number or information, um, which I think really I don't know. I, I guess just to say, just to repeat, you know, I've I've seen that as well in practice. There seems to be that drive for that information. I agree. And that's where society is going. And it's very hard to stand up against it as a GP in your practice with these patients. I think that's something that society as a whole needs to deal with. And the people we have elected, for example. Uh, and I think here in Europe, it's easier because we have the public health care system in the UK, for example, or here in Scandinavia, where some tests are not available or to turn it around, they're not paid for. So you cannot have that test because, you know, you as a GP, you would not get money for it from the government because the government or somebody has decided that this is not test, not a good test for your for your indication or your desire. You Then you have to go private somewhere. And, we, you know, but but I think... I think that's something for society to decide what what is on the menu for a GP to offer. And some things are not on the menu for a good reason. Um, and, and I think then it becomes easier for you to for as a GP to say, look, that test, it's not a good test and it's not on our menu. I can't give it to you. I mean, can we talk a bit about your um, your study from... Was it last year? Um, colonoscopy for colorectal cancer mm -hmm. screening. Um, because um, firstly, like I think people who don't follow these things might be like, oh, well, not another one of those. But it was the first time anyone's done an RCT on this. Yep. Um, and you got some interesting re reaction to it. Can you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yes, so that was a large randomized trial of colonoscopy screening to prevent colorectal cancer. Uh, as you say, it was the first first trial that has been done. And I don't think there will be <laughs> more than that one, uh, at least not comparing colonoscopy screening to no screening. Um, it was a huge undertaking, took almost 20 years. Um, and the findings were, as I said earlier, I think colonoscopy screening is much more interesting in terms of ben the benefit of harm ratio than PSA. Um, I think it actually may be a, a good deal. You don't live longer, but you know there are these other things that Jennifer mentioned. Our findings were that after 10 years, 10 years after colonoscopy screening, um, comparing people who got an invitation to those who did not get an invitation, the the incidence of colorectal cancer, so so people who with new new colorectal cancer diagnosis was reduced in the screening group by about twenty to thirty percent, depending on which analysis you you uh, you pick, uh, and the risk of dying from colorectal cancer was um, in the intention to treat analysis. It was very very small, uh, below ten percent. However, in per protocol analysis, uh, it was. Thirty uh, percent. I think the incidence here is, for me, the most interesting because you can colonoscopy is a tool. If it works, can prevent cancer, which I think is conceptually much more interesting than uh, you know just just preventing of dying from it. First, getting it and then not dying from it is not so interesting for me. I think preventing prevention of disease is more interesting. So twenty to thirty percent. Um, People in America, my colleagues in America, the, the gastroenterologists, my friends, they were not happy with it because they thought it would be 80 or 90 percent or, or approaching 100. And that was, and Jennifer, you're smiling because you're from over there. That was, was has been promoted for many years in the U.S. You know, go to colonoscopy and you will not get colon cancer. Super, super controversial. It's not like that. Yes. So so I, I thought 20 to 30 percent is... Okay, uh, they thought it was just very, very little, and then of course, this is what people do: they turn against the messenger, <laughs> turn against the study, and the people who did the study. There must be something wrong here with this study. Uh, so we had some interesting conversations. Any particularly um, uh, unfair criticism? What was the worst? Do you, is there one that stands out to you that, that they said you'd done wrong or? Oh, was a, was a lot of was a lot of interesting. I mean, things that I had never thought about. So, so, but, but it calmed down, and I approached these people, and I, you know, I know many of these people. These are my colleagues. So I approached them and I said, "Look, you know, I saw you saying this or that on CNN, and why did you say that?" And you know, so, so, and 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 they calmed down, and it was eventually after some weeks and months, it was a good good discussion. But but, for example, one thing which which was coming up was the fact that in America. Colonoscopies are done uh, under general anesthesia, propofol sedation. Uh, and here in Scandinavia, where we, and in Poland, where we did the study, we use, many people don't get any sedation at all. Some get a little bit of midazolam. And suddenly they go, oh, you're not sedating people. You are, you know, um, cruel Vikings or whatever. And, and the patients are just in pain and no wonder you're not seeing the polyps because the patient are having just a terrible time and, you know, people are screaming. I was like, what? Okay. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> so, um, yeah, <clears throat> but it calmed down eventually. I wonder about looking at survival after screening because 
presumably those people went on to have some sort of treatment um, and that has an impact on their outcome. So you aren't actually measuring the efficacy of screening in, in isolation in these studies? There is a certain effect, at least for some of these screening tests, to reduce cause-specific mortality, but not all-cause mortality. So reduce you, you reduce that one risk, but people don't live longer. And I think the, the most logical explanation is the following. So obviously some people, let's say some women uh, at mammographer screening are diagnosed with a small tumor uh, and treated and cured. Some of these, these women, I think, are actually living longer after mammography screening because that tumor was detected. So some people out of that population of all the people uh, you know who are exposed to mammography, some people will live longer. And they have a real gain. However, for that um, mean estimate on the population level to be zero, some people need to live shorter with mammography screening than without. And that's quite logical if you think about it, because some people die of complications of the treatment. You know, some people die um, uh, after surgery. Some people get um, infections or they get a DVT and then a PE um, or something, die of the chemotherapy, you know. It's not many, but some people, we know that. Uh, some people do. It's not many on the minus side and it's not many on the plus side. But if these, if these people are the same number, and there must be the same number because the effect on the population is zero. So pump, some people have a gain. Some people have a loss. And in, on average, it's zero. The problem for me and you who are considering screening is we don't know which, which group we're going to belong to. We might be fortunate to be on that plus side and have the cancer detected early and live longer, or we may unfor be unfortunate and die of the surgery. Well, um, kind of on a similar note, um, like when I read your paper and I saw that it was, was it 37 days safe for prostate cancer screening? But although it's highly uncertain, it's probably probably nothing, but it might be uh, might be 37 days gain per, for, for getting a PSA test. I added up how long I think an average GP might be spending uh, talking about these. So if they spend half an hour a week, over a whole over a whole sort of 37 year career then it will be it comes to 37 days of time <laughs> talking about PSA screening and so I'm going to go and have a PSA test to get that time back and uh and I'm, and I'm grateful to you for, <laughs> for helping me with that decision it was a very. Yeah, I, I have to. I have to remember that. Uh, that's that's very interesting. You should have written the editorial for the paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was. I was going to congratulate you, Tom, on linking to the concept of time needed to treat because this is something yeah. we've talked about a lot at BMJ as well. It's just the time that it takes to have these conversations with patients about these really nuanced and complex concepts around. You know, try, exactly what you said, Michael. Like trying to consider the costs, the benefits, and and then thinking deeply, like, which group am I going to be in? And if I'm not in the one that I want to be in, is it is it worth it? So, yeah, yeah. I agree. But um, talking about time, I think we've run out. So uh, <laughs> we're going to have to leave it there.
thank you. Uh, that's been such, such a great conversation. I learned a lot and really interesting, lots of sort of different levels and, and uh, of this, isn't there? So uh, thank you so much, Michael, um, for, for joining us. Um, I hope you'll come back another time. Let us know when the next thing comes out. We'll, 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 we'll let you know when we read your next uh, paper. Thank you so much. I had great fun. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Have and, a great uh, weekend. Yeah, you too. And uh, thanks, Jenny and, and, and Navjoit. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much. See you next time. And thanks so much, Michael. It's You're welcome. Bye-bye.